Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, wonderful music. Much to respond to already this morning. Been reading the Word and praying the Word and singing the Word. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Just going to read one verse and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord and our God, what a, what a passage. What a truth that is given that we might remember the great price that our Savior paid for our salvation. Lord, as we sit now under the washing of the water of Your Word, would You give us, Father, ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand. Bless now, Father, Your Word as it is preached, and those of us that hear, we ask that we would not leave here the same as we came, hearing only, but that we might put into practice that which we have heard in the weeks and months ahead. Father, all of this we commit to Your sovereign care in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It is good to be with you, Dave. Thank you for that kind introduction. And as I said, so much to respond to already this morning in the service. Right? Uh, as you were read, reading Psalm 107, <laughs> I could not help uh, but think back to my days afloat uh, on ships in various places in the world. Makes you feel very small to be on the great ocean. And even a massive warship which seems so huge, pierside in the middle of the Atlantic in the wintertime being tossed to and fro, it makes you feel very, very small. So the psalmist is good to bring that imagery to our minds to help us remember our place in the world. And, and the lyrical quality of language, uh, I think we have lost something in the various translations of the musical quality of God's Word. Uh, there's some things that only sound right to me in the more ancient versions. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine reading Psalm 23 without saying, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So uh, I think it's good to be reminded that it is a beautiful book that we love, isn't it? Um, God's Word is beautiful. It's a reflection of His character. Well, our text this morning from Hebrews 9 is a reminder of one of the great truths of Scripture. Dr. Moeller likes to tell the story of his first day of 
classes at Southern Baptist Seminary as a student. He, the professor of theology was having the students introduce themselves and tell the class their favorite hymn. And he remembers a young lady sitting next to him, one of his fellow students, when it came her turn to tell the professor about her favorite hymn, she pointed out the, that her favorite hymn was William Cooper's There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Dr. Moeller says that the professor's face became red, flushed, contorted with rage, and he pounded the lectern and said, Young lady, we will have none of that bloody cross religion here. Now, praise God that uh, that sort of heresy is no longer taught at that seminary, right? We can be thankful for a change there over the decades. But that bloody cross religion is biblical religion, right? It's biblical Christianity. There is no gospel without a bloody cross. There is no forgiveness for sin without the shedding of blood. The Bible teaches us, and not just here in Hebrews 9, but throughout Scripture. But that's the subject of our exposition this morning, is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This doctrine is so precious to us as believers, it really is a non-negotiable, one of those first-order truths for which there can be no compromise for us as believers. If we call ourselves Christians, we must necessarily believe that Christ died in our place on the cross. Dave and I were speaking last night about uh, church and um, we were sharing some mutual excitement about evangelism, about the the excitement that every believer should feel for sharing the gospel. It got me thinking that I'm very I'm history minded, and so I picked up one of the favorite books on my shelf this morning very early, "The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism: Revival and Revivalism." And in the early parts of this book, Ian Murray writes this about what's really the the single time period in American history where there was a great revival of biblical Christianity in the early decades of the 18th century, the 1730s and 40s. If you have not read the historical accounts of the mass conversions of Americans, let me encourage you to do so. But Ian Murray writes this about the revival of those decades. In speaking of the meaning of revival, it is also essential to note that what Davies, Samuel Davies, and the other great preachers of the First Great Awakening, and his brethren believed about revival was not something separate from or additional to their main beliefs. It was rather a necessary consequence. Such is man's state in sin that he cannot be saved without the immediate influence of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and the faith that results from it are the gifts of God. Therefore, whenever conversions are multiplied, the cause is not to be found in men, nor in favorable conditions, 
but, but in the abundant influences of the Spirit of God that alone make the testimony of the church effective. No other explanation of revival is in harmony with the truths that are the essence of the Christian scheme. The utter depravity of man, the sovereignly free grace of Jehovah, the divinity of Christ, the atonement in His blood, regeneration and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Well, thus let revival take place in our day, right? We preach and teach the great truths of the Bible, work as if it all depends upon us, knowing the depths of our being that we're dependent utterly on the Lord our God. So, our text this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, the uh, I think we'll start out by asking and answering a series of questions and then make some application from our text. The first question that is helpful for us when we think of this doctrine is to ask simply, does God truly require the shedding of blood to cover sin? Is it a requirement that blood be shed to cover sin? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we see this doctrine being displayed. In Genesis chapter 3, how did God cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve? He killed an animal. God killed an animal and provided the skins to cover their nakedness when they sinned against Him. In Exodus chapter 12, how did the Israelites mark the doorposts of their homes? When the angel passed over Egypt, killing all of the firstborn, both animals and men, the shed blood of lambs caused the Lord to pass over. Leviticus 17.11, really the, the quote that the writer of Hebrews is quoting when he writes in chapter 9, verse 22, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood equals life. Without blood, there is no life. My years on various battlefields around the world have taught me that the most important thing that you can do to help a wounded comrade is to stop the bleeding. The leading cause of death in battle is exsanguation. That's the medical term. It means simply bleeding to death. And so we go to extraordinary lengths to stop the bleeding. We believe in most cases if you can get the bleeding stopped and get that wounded Marine to a surgical hospital within the first hour that his odds of survival are greatly improved. Blood is life. The life is in the blood. Stop the bleeding and you save the life. Well, that's what is meant here. That's what's taught to us in Scripture again and again and again. The life is in the blood. The entire Levitical system revolved around the ritualistic killing of animals, the shedding of blood as both a substitution and a propitiation. Substitution 
and a propitiation. Substitution, that the animal is killed in our place. That what we deserve is given to an animal. We've sinned against a holy God, but the animal is killed in our place. Why? As a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of a God who is angry at sin. And so the killing of animals represents both a substitution and a propitiation. Does God truly require the shedding of blood to cover sin? Unequivocally, yes. The second question, why does God require the shedding of blood to forgive sin? Why is it that God requires shed blood to cover sin? The answer is because sin is serious business. And lest we begin to think about our God as some primitive, bloodthirsty, pagan deity, let's remember His character. Our God is the thrice holy God. Isaiah having a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A holy God. The Puritans wrote extensively about the sinfulness of sin and frequently expounded on the exceeding wickedness of transgressing the law of a righteous and holy God. More recently, one of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges, in his tremendous book, Respectable Sins, says this, The entire concept of sin has virtually disappeared from our American culture and has been softened even within many of our churches to accommodate modern sensibilities. Indeed, strong biblical words for sin have been excised from our vocabulary. People no longer commit adultery. They have affairs. Corporate executives do not steal. They commit fraud. An apt indictment of our culture and of our churches. To sin is to commit cosmic treason against the benevolent king of heaven and earth. When we consider our God and his goodness to us, his people, which we read about in the psalmist proclaimed in Psalm 107, God's great goodness to his people. To sin is to commit cosmic treason against that good God. To sin is to portray one who did not spare his own son in love for us. To sin is not simply to despise God's word. It despises God himself. Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, You despise the word of the Lord. You despised me. One of the great dramatic scenes in all of biblical imagery, isn't it? The wizened old prophet leaning on his staff, pointing at the young king so full of himself. Thou art the man. And then telling David what the Lord thought of him. Not only did he despise God's Word, you despise the Lord Himself. 
To sin is to declare war on the throne of heaven. Paul in Romans 3 describes that for us so aptly, doesn't he? As he's describing the depravity of man. Quoting the Old Testament, Paul's command of Scripture as he brought those images to bear in Romans 3 are powerful. Culminating, of course, with the realization that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if our first question, does God truly require the shedding of blood, we answered yes. The second question, why does God require the shedding of blood to forgive sin? Because sin is serious business. A third question, how is the shed blood of Jesus different from the blood of animals in the Levitical system? And now we're getting more razor-focused on our text in its broader context. How is the shed blood of Jesus different from the blood of animals in the Levitical system? The writer of Hebrews is writing primarily to Jewish Christians in the first century who are very familiar with the Old Testament and understand all of the imagery of the Levitical system. And so he's helping them to understand how the blood of Jesus is different than the blood of bulls and goats. The central thesis, really, of the entire book of Hebrews is simply that Christ is better. He's better than Moses which was exceedingly offensive to those Jews. Christ is better than their high priests. Christ brings a better promise and a better covenant. He is a better, a superior, and a sufficient sacrifice. So the remainder of this section of the book of Hebrews explains how Christ put an end to the sacrificial system with His once-for-all atonement, atonement for sins past and present (coughs) and future. Let's look to the text again, and we want to continue over to to verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's a better high priest, isn't he? Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Not covered with the blood of a lamb, or a bull, or a goat, or a heifer, but His own blood by the sacrifice of Himself. A better sacrifice. Moving into chapter 10, he continues this theme. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not have ceased to be offered. Jews would still be sacrificing. 
bulls and goats and lambs if these sacrifices, in essence, actually perfected the conscience, as the writer of Hebrews will describe, actually had the power to forgive sin, then we would still need to be slaughtering these animals. And then, finally, if we look, picking up in verse 11 of chapter 10, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And then there's that beautiful little conjunction. It appears in Scripture in such hopeful terms, doesn't it? But. <laughs> Reminds me of Ephesians 2.4. That's the most hopeful three-letter word in the Bible. But. But God. Right? And here we see again. But. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering that put an end to the sacrificial system. That's why Catholic worship is so offensive to us, isn't it? Every Mass at communion, they're offering anew and afresh the body and blood of Jesus. That's what they teach. The actual blood and body of Christ in Catholic communion. That's why piece of furniture in the front of a Catholic church is called an altar because they're in essence sacrificing Christ each time they celebrate communion. That's why it's anathema to us. We don't have altars in our churches. We have tables, right? Not sacrificing Christ each Lord's day. The Bible says once for all time. There was one sacrifice that put an end to sacrifices. Now we sit at a table with our Lord Jesus. Right? Communion looks backwards in time and space to that last supper with Jesus and His disciples. It looks to the present when we're in mystic communion with our Lord and Savior. He is with us. And then we look forward in time and space to when we will sit with Christ again at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Communion is one of the two interpretive dances we have in our churches, right? Uh, we are often accused of not having drama in our churches. We have drama twice, right? We have communion and we have baptism. That's interpretive dance or our version thereof. It communicates such beautiful symbolism for us. Christ was a better, a perfect sacrifice. Does God truly require the shedding of blood to cover sin? Yes, resoundingly. Why does God require the shedding of blood to forgive sin? Because sin is a heinous crime against a perfectly holy and righteous God. To overlook sin would violate God's own character. And third, how is the shed blood of Jesus different from the blood of animals in the Levitical system because Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, now that we've answered these questions, let me 
conclude by offering a few points of application. Picking up in verse 19 of chapter 10, we have the the let us passages, right? (laughs) Let us, let us, let us, the writer exhorts. Well, he another conjunction to start verse 19, therefore, brothers, since, therefore, since all of this is true, since Christ sacrificed Himself in our place, if we believe and stand on the truth of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus, then these things are true. These things ought to be done by us. We ought to put into practice our belief. We ought to operationalize our faith by doing these things. So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here come the list of exhortations, the list of commands. Let me just read them for you quickly. We're to draw near to God, hold fast our confession of hope, stir up one another to love and good works, meet together, corporate worship, encourage one another. And that encouragement is in the context of corporate worship. Put off sin and be holy. And finally, to endure suffering and persecution. This list of exhortations, this list of commands for you and I is for believers only. Those who have repented of their sins and run to Christ and His shed blood as our only hope in this life and the life to come. If we are among the redeemed, then our lives ought to look like what the writer is describing for us. Christians ought to draw near to God. Christians ought to hold fast our confession of hope, the gospel. Believers ought to stir up one another to love God and to perform good works. Christians ought to meet together, not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and to encourage one another in the context of meeting together in worship. Believers are to put off sin and be holy. And believers are to endure suffering and persecution. Whenever I read about suffering and persecution, it makes me wonder how we will suffer in the days ahead, right? And how we will bear up to that suffering. Will we joyfully suffer? The writer of Hebrews talk about, talks about the being joyful when they plunder your property. The commentators assume that this is written to the Jews in Rome after the edict given by the Roman Emperor Claudius, where the Jews were expelled from Rome, cast out their property seized by the Roman government. So will we joyfully submit to the plundering of our property when they come to take our homes because we proclaim Christ? Will we suffer well together? I think the emphasis is suffering well together. Nothing brings the church together like persecution, like pressure from the outside. It makes us understand and remember truly what this is about, what it means 
to multiply our joys and to divide our sorrows, and how critically important the church is at all times, but especially in persecution. Well, this list of the lettuce passages, the commands, the exhortations that Scripture gives to us are firmly rooted in the great truths of our faith. We stand on the great truths of our faith. We we hold up the great truths of our faith. And the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the reality that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, is fundamental to our faith. And while liberal Christians have always reacted so violently against that doctrine, the shedding of blood implies directly that there is sin to be forgiven, which is offensive to the modern mind. When liberal Christianity first began to take root in America in the early parts of the 20th century, the substitutionary atonement of Christ was the first doctrine that had to be tossed overboard. Along with the virgin birth and many other critical parts of the Christian faith, but bloody cross religion had to go. Because talking about the shed blood of Christ means we have to talk about why that blood was shed to cover the sin of people. So we must affirm. We must preach it. We must teach it. We must believe it in all of its implications. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sin. Verse 31 of chapter 10 reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a message our culture needs to hear. It's a message that you and I need to hear. As I consider the sin in my own heart, how I continue, even though I know the truth, to live like a practical atheist. Right? It's what we do when we sin. We're living like a practical atheist when we forget the precious truths of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Well, at the outset, I made reference to the hymn that drew the professor's rage and wrath about bloody cross religion. If you have a hymnal on your table, why don't you open it up to hymn number 196 and just going to read this to us in conclusion this morning. If you don't know the story of William Cooper and his, his dear beloved pastor John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, it's a precious story of a believer who struggled with crippling depression throughout his life, William Cooper, attempting suicide on multiple occasions, ministered to by his faithful pastor who came to his bedside time and again. William Cooper penned these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, 
wash all my sins away. Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. I got ahead of myself. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Father, what a sobering reality it is that our sin, our rebellion against a good and kind and benevolent God required a perfect sacrifice and that You spared not Your own Son, Jesus, that we might be forgiven. Lord, would You help us to remember how great a price was paid for our redemption. And would we live thankfully, gratefully, joyfully, knowing that our sins, past, present, and future, we're nailed to the cross, that we've been washed as white as snow, and that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sin from us. Would that reality, Father, propel us into the week ahead that we might be quick to speak with our co-workers, our neighbors, those we encounter, that we might view them as they are, dead men walking, and we, possess the elixir of life, the precious truth of the gospel, that though their sin may be as scarlet, they may be washed white by the blood of the Lamb. Father, we commit our worship this morning to your care. Would you help us to put it into practice as we depart now? In Christ's name, amen and amen.